Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined by Steve Baker. Steve is an independent journalist who was actually present at the January 6th, I don't know what to call it, the attempted insurrection or whatever verbiage you want to use to describe the incident at January 6th of 2021. Steve is in Washington, D.C. right now covering a lot of the the trial uh, content related to the January 6th hearings and very fascinating guest for me to have on the show today. I really appreciate everyone tuning in. If you are a fan of the Kelly Patrick Show, I ask that you please send some referrals the way of my sponsors. The title sponsor of the show is Louisville Combat Academy, located at 7908 Beulah Church Road, Louisville, Kentucky, 40228. They have a great MMA program, but also, even if you aren't planning on fighting in the cage, they have a great jiu-jitsu program for adults, female-friendly classes, and a great kids program also. Check out Louisville Combat Academy. Heidi Solars Coots. Heidi is a licensed clinical social worker and licensed clinical alcohol and drug counselor, specializing in treating anxiety, depression, trauma, and addiction with a mindful and holistic approach. Heidi is actually my mother, and I can attest she is a saint. Call her at 502-457-1823. Virtual and telephonic appointments are available anywhere in the United States. Veercast Digital Media. Veercast Digital Media at veercast.com. Matt McCarthy runs Veercast, and he is also the producer for The Kelly Patrick Show. They do video production, aerial drone photography, web design, and podcast production. Contact them at info at veercast.com to start your own video show or podcast. Also, my health insurance practice, Benefits Analysis Corporation. Based in Troy, Ohio, I work from my Louisville, Kentucky office. I can help anyone in the United States with their health insurance needs. I'm an independent broker for health insurance solutions for individuals, families, Medicare-eligible individuals, and also groups. I can also write life insurance, and long-term care. If you want to support the podcast, please send me some referrals. 502-386-0978. Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, we are joined courtesy of the Louisville Combat Academy Roadcaster Line all the way from Washington, D.C., Steve Baker. Now, I want to clarify, we are going to be talk uh, talking about the January 6th capital uh, incident, and, and Stephen M. Baker is an independent journalist who was present at the, the uh, Capitol on January 6th, but he is not the Stephen M. Baker who was actually arrested. Steve, that's a correct, uh, accurate introduction? Yes, that's pretty accurate right there. There were two of us with the exact same name, spelled the same way. The only difference in our name is his name was Stephen Maury Baker, and mine is Stephen Michael Baker. And that's created a lot of confusion over the last year and a half. But nevertheless, he was the one that actually was arrested, charged, uh, actually pled out uh, on his charges. And I am the guy who was threatened with prosecution but have not been charged or arrested yet. Okay. um, Now... Just because I do think people listening to this episode will be wondering, uh, Steve, you're not like a, a diehard Trump supporter. My understanding is you're not, 
you're not really like a big Biden supporter either, but your presence at the January 6th um, Capitol incident was strictly as a independent journalist. So I know that seems silly to even need to talk about, but hopefully many people are listening who are not familiar with who you are. That's an accurate statement, right? Yes, I went to the Capitol on January 6th because there was the claim that the, well, not only did Trump say that it was going to be wild, but more importantly, there was some sort of anticipation that there was going to be something read into the record that day about the uh, controversial uh, election returns and that maybe the Kraken was going to be unleashed that day from the stage at the rally point. There were also several other events scheduled that day, even some of them up at the Capitol. So myself and actually another writer, a, a writer of some esteem, and I'm not going to use his name without his permission, but we drove up together from Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, we attended the speeches there that morning at the Ellipse in the Washington Monument area. Then we did what we intended to do all the time, which was to head over the Capitol to actually watch and cover the additional events that were scheduled on the Capitol lawn uh, on the, the Capitol lawn that day. And of course, as we all know, uh, all hell broke loose before we got there, and then everything else transpired as it transpired from that point forward. And those other events never took place. So, not only were you present on January sixth at the Capitol. Uh, but you, of course, have been covering it ever since. So uh, I want to dive into a lot of details about the people who uh, are being charged or will be charged, have been charged with certain crimes related to the January 6th incident at the Capitol. But uh, before we do that, Steve, if it's all right, could you paint the picture if someone's listening and they really don't know much about what happened on January 6th, why everyone was there. They didn't follow the news very closely at that time. Steve, what is your take on what the hell was going on that day, January 6th? Well, apart from the fact that there was a rally scheduled and hundreds of thousands of people showed up for this big event on a Wednesday of all things. It wasn't a Saturday event. It was in the middle of the week. It was a very cold day, uh, you know, 25, 30 mile an hour wind all day long. People stayed for hours and hours and hours, got in line and held their place at the rally point that morning at the ellipse, which is by the White House. And then the crowd was so large that it spilled out into about most of the Washington Mon Monument lawn, uh, lawn as well. And then as I mentioned before, people started moving from the rally point to actually march on the Capitol. You know, it was it was a First Amendment protest march is what it was. And then there was another stage scheduled to be up on the Washington, uh, the Capitol lawn that uh, other VIP speakers were supposed to be at. And of course, by the time I arrived and, and the, the gentleman that I was with, we looked up and we could see well, first of all, we heard sirens approaching the Capitol, a lot of sirens. And then we started seeing police pouring down the steps because we were walking up on the west side, which is where the inauguration uh, setup was. As you know, they they completely, which is ostensibly the backside of the Capitol. And that's where they set up the, the inaugural staging for that. And so as a backdrop, that inaugural staging, we saw Metropolitan Police joining Capitol Police because the Metropolitan Police were dressed differently. We could see that they were pouring down the steps, and and then we 
saw smoke and then we heard flashbangs. I looked over at the other writer that I was with and I said, well, <laughs> that's where we're going. I mean, that's what you do when you're a journalist. You follow the story where the story develops. So we we broke out in a trot up uh, onto the West Terrace. And as soon as I got to the West Terrace, the very first thing that I captured on my video camera was people already receiving first aid. And then for the next hour, it was just a, you know, it was a huge melee and a battle line. And then uh, when that was uh, uh, not over, but as it progressed finally to the actual breach on the West side through those Senate, what they call the West side Senate doors. And once that had taken place, by the time I got up to where that had happened to, again, to film that, People were just pouring into the Capitol by the hundreds at that point. And so I joined them and went in myself. So you went in as a journalist, of course. Correct. What was the type of conversation that was going on? What was your your take on why people were going in? Why were people going in? Well, because this is this is the part that so many people don't understand, particularly those that have a jaundiced view. And I and I don't mind saying from the left, I, I don't typically refer to Republicans and Democrats or conservatives and um, liberals. I I just pretty much say the left and the right. <laughs> that, that's that's my own choice. But those on the right that were there that day were not there for violence there were elements within the crowd of the extreme right of the extreme left and other types of provocateurs which are largely as yet unidentified by either the fbi or all these online seditious you know conspiracy hunters that are out there but the point being is is that there was even identified by the Department of Justice only about 200 to 225 people who actually engaged in violence and property destruction that day. As of yet, there's been over 900 people arrested for various offenses. The the most consistent one of all is that what I call a glorified trespassing charge. In other words, it's, you know, entering a restricted, you know, federal building. And so that's been the most consistent charge and pretty much everybody's been been charged with that. And most people that have been charged with three or four other misdemeanors have pled down to that one and have gotten a slap on the wrist. They've either gotten a $500, $2,000 fine, a two-year probation, that sort of thing. Most people have not spent prison time over this. Some people, unfortunately, have spent a lot of time in jail already. Some people approaching 600 days have already been held without bail. And some of those that are being held without bail did no violence or any property damage either, but they have been and are facing the larger uh, conspiracy charge, which has been leveled against uh, some of the Oath Keepers and some of the Proud Boys. And that's what I'm here in D.C. doing right now is I'm actually covering the first Oath Keepers trial, which began uh, three, a little over three weeks ago. And now uh, we're looking at this thing not being over till probably close to Thanksgiving. So, um, and I know, once again, I'm going back to this, Steve. You don't consider yourself to be on the right. Would you say you're more on the left? No, no, no. I, I, am, a, I am a small L libertarian. I take all the tests. People test me all the time because they don't think that I am. <laughs> but I, I, have a, I have an axiom. There's the world we want versus the world in which we actually live. And that's why I call myself a pragmatic constitutional. I actually used to go by the moniker of the pragmatic libertarian. I dropped that because 
too many people associated me with the party and I'm not a member of any party. I'm not a Republican, not a Democrat, and I'm not a libertarian party person. Philosophically, I'm as libertarian as anybody can be. But having said that, I recognize that the world we live in doesn't allow us to snap our finger and just suddenly um, be all free, everything and anarchist to the extreme. We have to adapt and adopt to the circumstances and the laws uh, under which we live. So for me, the best thing that we can possibly do is adhere as closely to the original founding documents as we can in terms of operating within our, our libertarian ideals. So that's why I have adopted the pragmatic constitutionalist. So maybe more accurately, I'm a constitutional libertarian. Okay. And I know that seems, you know, as a journalist, that shouldn't be as relevant. But when we're hearing uh, this version of events, of course, people, you know, listening will wonder, well, this Steve guy, maybe he sounds like he's defending the people who tried to overthrow our government or, you know, I mean, there's all sorts of very serious accusations that have went into this entire uh, ordeal. So it, it, I appreciate you setting the stage with, with, uh, your own personal, personal political ideology. Well, first of all, I'm not defending anybody who did violence against law enforcement or did property damage against the Capitol that day. Uh, they need and should be uh, prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Uh, I will tell you that in the hundreds of interviews I've done since that day, I have often had the opportunity to describe the type of people that I saw interacted with videotaped and have analyzed now for months and months and months as being bad people that were there with the intent of doing bad things. There were good people there who got caught up in the moment and did some bad things. There were a lot of good people there who never did bad things. And then there were good people there who did really good things that day in terms of helping people and helping uh, injured individuals, including help in injured law enforcement. And in some cases, those were the Oath Keepers. Uh, And that story is not being told by the mainstream press. It's certainly not being told by the House uh, Select Committee on January 6th. And so there's a lot of disinformation in the media. And I, and I, I will tell you that in covering this trial, I'm sitting in the press room every single day with all the big guys from the New York Times, Washington Post, NPR, CBS, NBC, CNN, right down the line. So I'm seeing not only uh, sitting next to them and chatting with them every day, but I'm seeing the stories that they're writing. And still to this day, all of these months later, they're still painting a narrative that is not completely accurate. Okay, so you're there covering the trial of the Oath Keepers. Um, If we're going to dive into who are the Oath Keepers, I know this is probably (laughs) a a subjective definition, but according to the Southern Poverty Law Center. (laughs) Yeah, well, they're they're the authority, aren't they? That's good. Can't Um, wait to hear this. It says, the Oath Keepers, which claims tens of thousands of present and former law enforcement officials and military veterans as members, is one of the largest far-right anti-government groups in the U.S. today. What do you think of that description? Well, they left out um, white extremists. extremists uh, <laughs> they didn't touch on the racism. No, I can't believe the Southern Poverty Law Center left that one out because that's usually, in fact, that's what that's what they have been called uh, by the House Select Committee as a white supremacist group as well. 
And uh, so starting with that very description, they get a lot of things wrong. First of all, it's not a claim of tens of thousands. They they had before this event something in excess of 30,000 actual registered members who are, in fact, either current or former law enforcement and military, uh, including uh, members of the FBI, uh, state and local authorities, federal law enforcement, and then uh, f- f- members of every branch of the military. So that part is is uh, absolutely correct. The, the fact that some people label them as a white supremacist group is absolutely incorrect. The number two guy in command behind Stuart Rhodes, the founder and leader of the Oath Keepers, is a black man. Uh, so that kind of negates that narrative right off the bat. May, and maybe the Southern Poverty Law School uh, or Law Center knew that. And so they thought may, maybe we shouldn't go there. But then there's the there's the accusation that they are a far right extremist uh, militia type and they don't operate as a militia. And that's one of the things that is is very confusing. And, and of course, again, the characterization of the mainstream press, the characterization of the leftist lawmakers on Capitol Hill in these. Uh, sham January 6th hearings have continued to paint them as an extremist group, and that's just not exactly what they are. The actual name Oath Keepers comes from the fact that they recruited these individuals to help in their communities. They do hurricane and disaster relief, like down in Florida. They 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 go and they help. They actually interact with and assist local law enforcement where there were riots going on, as we saw in 2020. They the Oath Keepers were often there. And in the 13-year history of the Oath Keepers and all of the events, the hundreds of events, events in which they have taken part in providing personal security to either VIPs, working with and assisting local law enforcement and helping them because their numbers couldn't handle on their own the problem of protecting properties by themselves against the numbers of rioters that were on the streets in, in all the cities that, that we, we saw and read and heard about in 2020. In all of these events that they took place in, not one single time was an Oath Keeper ever charged with a crime at all. Not once. Never happened until the fallout of January 6th. But the government needed a scapegoat. And the government has said and insinuated, not just insinuated, they flat out said that the Oath Keepers were, in fact, the leaders of the insurrection. They were the tip of the spear. These are quotes that have come right from the leftist lawmakers on Capitol Hill. These are the quotes that have come even in the courtroom. The actual lead prosecuting attorney in this particular Oath Keeper trial, in his opening argument, first one to speak after the jury was introduced and sat and the judge made his opening marks. Um, This guy's name is Jeffrey Nessler. He's an assistant uh, U.S. attorney. He's the lead prosecutor in this case, and he called the Oath Keepers the leaders. And in fact, that is absolutely a flat-out lie. Okay, if the Oath Keepers were not the leaders of the attempted insurrection, isn't that Mm -hmm. right? Then who was? Well, that's a great question, and that's one thing that the government has not yet proven because on the stand, the the government's own witnesses, this includes FBI agents and, uh, and law enforcement officers of all types. It also includes uh, former and current 
um, oath keepers. It also these are government witnesses. These are guys who have already pled out. Are these are guys who were not charged, and then because they weren't charged, they were called in because of their association directly with the ones the, the the current defendants in this particular trial and been asked to testify. These witnesses have not done well for the prosecution yet. In fact, one of the actual oath key, uh, not oath keepers, one of the FBI agents, special FBI agent. Uh, her last name is um, uh, Drew, Whitney Drew. I just remembered her name. So a special agent of the FBI, Whitney Drew on the stand admitted that she was only aware of between 15 and 20 oath keepers on the Capitol grounds that day. Now I'll ask you, Kelly, how does 15 to 20 unarmed individuals of any type regardless of what they call themselves, overthrow the government of the United States to fully armed law enforcement divisions, the United States Capitol Police, the Metropolitan Police, uh, tactical units of the FBI, the ATF, U.S. Marshals, as well as embedded United States Army Special Forces in the crowd, which has now been verified. And that does not an insurrection make. Just start there. And so the question is, is how were they the leaders? Well, unfortunately for the government's case is that by the time this group of, as she said, Agent Drew said that there was 15 to 20 identified that were in the crowd. By the time they arrived, there were already thousands of people who were already at the Capitol, on both the west side and the east side of the Capitol. By the time the first barricade was breached, as we've seen, you know, the, the famous Ray Epps video, by the time that first barricade was breached, the Oath Keepers were still at the rally point. They, they, they had not even arrived on the Capitol grounds yet. By the time the first door was breached, and the, by the time the Capitol was flooded with hundreds of individuals from the west side when the Oath Keepers entered from the east side door opening, the Capitol was already full. And what the government has not proven yet is that there's any connection whatsoever with those who breached those outer barricades, with those who breached those doors, those who opened the east side doors from the inside with from the Capitol's own closed circuit television videos, which we can watch. And fact, and in fact, the Oath Keepers were not even in visual range yet to see who opened that door. But by the time they got to the top of the steps on the east side, the door was open, so they walked through it. So my point being is, how can they be the leaders when so many thousands were already there in front of them, when so many hundreds were already in the Capitol, and so many dozens upon dozens of violent and um, let's just, you know, let's call them agents provocateur, actually busted windows, opened the doors from the inside. The government has made not a single effort to connect the Oath Keepers to those individuals who actually did the dirty work. So until they make that connection, that there was a conspiracy between those violent perpetrators and the Oath, Oath Keepers, they have no case. And that's what's, uh, that's what the, obviously the defense attorneys are attempting to prove in this trial. So the January 6th event happened, of course, um, many people in the United States on the left, including much of the media, um, wanted to spin it in a way that it was just these 
frustrated Trump supporters. Trump, Alex Jones, um, you know, every, they had directed these people to go overthrow the government, overto- overturn the results of the democratically held election, and, and to uh, take control of the government. Yeah. Why has the narrative, or has the narrative turned into, it was the at the direction of the Oath Keepers, but why have they turned into, I guess, the scapegoat? How have they pinpointed in on the Oath Keepers, and that's turned into the uh, prevailing, really, narrative uh, that comes to? Why the Oath Keepers? Well, the, the Oath Keepers being an organization made up of a whole bunch of former military guys, as you know, military guys can have some rather rancorous and salty language. <laughs> and also, they had, unfortunately, many, many meetings uh, that were recorded on go-to-meeting sites. Uh, they had uh, walkie-talkie communications through the Zello app the day of January 6th. They had a lot of signal uh chats and uh, chat rooms that they participated in uh, for planning various events that they were involved in some of them some of those at the capitol before january 6th but in all of those meetings you have a bunch of guys uh, with some pretty you know pretty extremist language that sort of thing so they were able to use that language to bring into the mix and say you see these guys were actually planning insurrection these guys were planning to overthrow the government these guys were planning to bring arms and to actually use them to um, stop the lawful transfer of presidential power from uh the Trump administration to the Biden administration. So they had all of this rancorous language. Unfortunately, the one thing that the prosecution refuses to show is that in the middle of all of that language, there was also the buffer language in between, and they leave those chats out. They leave those messages out. Like, for instance, when the building was actually breached, when the Capitol building itself was actually breached, the one message that they failed to produce, and of course, was uh, obviously the uh, defense did in cross-examination, Uh, of these FBI agents was a message that said very specifically and very explicitly, we need to go inside and we need to protect the members and the staff from violence. The members being the members of Congress, because this is what they do. No law enforcement, no Oath Keeper assaulted law enforcement that day. In fact, we have famous videos of law enforcement being assisted by uh, Oath Keepers that day. One in particular was the uh, the incident where uh, Capitol Police Lieutenant uh, Tariq Johnson recruited two Oath Keepers to get him inside through the crowd because the crowd respects the Oath Keepers. People from the right understand who they are and what they are, what their mission is. And so they were able to part the crowd. The actual United States police officer handed him or handed one of those Oath Keepers his bullhorn. So as they're going up the steps, they're, they're saying, we're Oath Keepers, we're Oath Keepers, make way, make way, make way. And then they shielded that that U.S. Um, Capitol Police officer, between the two of them, they walk inside the Capitol, and then they literally rescued 15, well, actually 16, but 15 of them were riot cops in full riot gear, and two Oath Keepers escorted 16 United States Capitol Police officers out of the building, all captured by a professional uh, videographer who was there as a documentarian that day. And all of this was captured on film that has not been shown in court yet, but I guarantee you it will be when the uh, defense gets to present their case. 
Okay, so differentiating the Oath Keepers versus the, the Proud Boys, um, what, what are the uh, mission statements uh, of the two organizations and how did they play a role in the um, January 6th? Uh, that, that's, a, that's an interesting thing too because the government, uh, particularly the January 6th committee, has tried to link the two of them together. And, and in fact... There was a meeting between the two oath keep, uh, between the oathkeeper leader uh, Stuart Rhodes and between I think his name's Enrique uh, Tario, the the founder and leader of the Proud Boys. They um, actually met for the first time in their lives in a uh, parking garage. Uh, I think it was on January 5th. And so there was video of their actually shaking hands. And so the government has tried to link that together when in fact, that's the first time and the only time that they've actually had a hookup between the two of those gentlemen. But what ended up happening was, is that the proud boys themselves, they had an entirely different um, mindset and they've always had a completely different mindset at these events. The, The proud boys are known to be someone that when they go into a crowd, they are hunting Antifa. They are looking to bust heads. They are looking to actually engage with people. Whereas the Oath Keepers mission is the exact opposite. The Oath Keepers mission has always been to stand guard and protect property because of their their oath. That's what they are. The, The very concept of being an Oath Keeper is that even after their retirement from the military or their time in law enforcement is that they wanted to take their skills learned and keep their oaths and continue doing service to the community in that manner. And so as a result of having been taught in both cases, you know, whether you're military or law enforcement, you're taught how to obey the law in the context of your training and your skills and what your mission is. So these guys going forward have always decided that we're going to maintain and keep our, our oath and and help our communities even after our time served uh, serving government at whatever level whereas the proud boys completely different organization they actually get off on you know maybe doing some of the same things maybe ostensibly protecting um one side of a counter protest but uh, they enjoy interacting directly with uh, more violent people in the crowds Okay, and are the Proud Boys being uh, blamed quite as much as the Oath Keepers are for the January 6th incident? Yeah, the, the two names are generally spoken together, although in this courtroom, uh, they've largely left the Proud Boys out. They have, there have been some uh, examples or some uh, moments when the Proud Boys have been in, uh, brought up and introduced into the conversation in the courtroom. But they, the government, I think, knows that they can't successfully make a conspiratorial connection between the two. So they left that out. As a matter of fact, some of those chats between Oath Keepers have actually talked about whether they should work with, whether they should engage with, engage with the Proud Boys or not. But they even said in their own chats, yeah, we think there's some good guys over there. We like them, but you know, they kind of like to go in and bust heads and that's not what we do. And so those chats have actually been introduced in court. So uh, even though the, even though the house select committee has been uh, conflating the two together in the, the overall grand conspiracy that everyone's being charged with in the courtroom, that's not happening because they can't produce the evidence of that connection. On social media, Ever since January 6th, uh, of course, the, I guess, infamous incident, um, I have interacted with, with many people, 
uh, a lot of times people on the left who will be, um, you know, trying to make it sound like January 6th was the worst thing in the history of the world. And it was the Trump supporters trying to overthrow the democratically elected uh, new president. And, you know, I'm, I'm just not always quite sure of that being the accurate uh, narrative. So one of the talking points that I've been intrigued by is the topic, you mentioned it earlier, how many people have been arrested and how many of those people are still being held after their arrest in, you know, maybe a jail cell, things like that. I, you, you never know. Uh, people don't believe a lot of things. They hear, oh, there's people being held in solitary confinement and they don't even know what they're being charged for. And then someone on the left will hear that. and They're like, okay, who is it? Uh, You know, what's the name of the person? And, you know, I just don't have much for it. So I've been searching. And as I said during the introduction, Steve, that's how I got in touch with you is, you know, I I don't know. How do I access that information? Who's being held? Well, there there are sites out there that actually keep a running list. Uh, Business Insider, which is a you know, pretty hardcore leftist uh, publication. They keep a very accurate running list of all those who have been charged for uh, various crimes uh, related to January sixth, and they're up, they're up they're somewhere over over the nine hundred count now. The last I looked at at their count, it was around nine nineteen, I think it was, that have actually been charged to some level or the other. Now, just because they've been charged, does not mean that they were doing violence or that they broke into the Capitol. There are, in fact, grandmothers who, after hundreds of people had walked through and saw the door open and then wandered in themselves because it looked like that the door had been open to them they walk through carrying their trump flags or whatever that have uh one one grandmother in particular 69 years old uh she's suffering with cancer actually undergoing cancer treatment and therapy she walked into the capitol at 69 years of age uh, with a trump flag and she was sentenced to two months in prison for that and all she did was walk through an open door that's crazy, man. Uh, she didn't break anything. She didn't assault any law enforcement officers, but they got her with what's called the parading charge. So in addition to the glorified trespassing charge, there's a parading charge where she was she was probably videoed waving her flag and chanting as she walked, you know, uh, whatever. You know, there, there was there were dozens of different types of chants that were going on during that um, that incursion into the building but uh, people in revelous behavior were chanting various things and not necessarily anti-government things but many of the times uh, most sometimes they were just singing the national anthem sometimes they were chanting usa usa sometimes they were chanting uh whose house our house whose house our house uh and um sometimes they were chanting just chanting the name trump whatever but um, there were uh, certainly, as I've said before, bad people doing bad things, but there were good people who just looked up and saw, oh, well, hey, the doors are open and they started wandering in. And most of the charges, most of the people who have been both arrested and charged in January 6 related things did no damage no violence whatsoever. They're just being charged with going into the building or being in a restricted space. And so um, 
as to the question of how many are still being held actually in prison, I don't know that exact number at this time because I've been so focused for the last few weeks just on the Oath Keeper situation. But of the the five that are currently on trial in this trial today, um, four of them are being held in detention. They have been held, the, the, the shortest period of time has been now about 10 months, and then the longest period of time has been almost two, you know, just in the weeks following the January 6th event itself. One one particular um, uh, defendant in this trial, his name is Ken Harrelson. He's a uh, disabled Army veteran, was a welder for SpaceX. He only joined the Oath Keepers because he was looking for an organization uh, through which he could use his skills that he had learned in the military, help his community do disaster relief, hurricane relief, that sort of thing. He was not even going to the January 6th event, did not even participate in any of the planning calls or any of the you know discussions leading up to that. But they needed him to do and lead security on one of the side stages. Now, this was a fully permitted, licensed side stage by the park police, the, the, the Capitol Park Police, on the Capitol grounds, and he had a particular job skill that he was going to do personal security detail for these VIPs at that stage. And so they called him on the night of January 3rd and said, Ken, we need you. Ken says to them, I can't even afford to go. They said, don't worry about it. We'll make sure that you can jump in the car with one of the other guys coming up from Florida and uh, we'll cover your hotel room. Don't worry about it. Just be there. He said, okay. He jumps in the car with them on the morning of January 4th. Now he's riding with two individuals. These two other Oath Keepers who came up from Florida with him both testified against the Oath Keepers. These were government witnesses in this trial. The two gentlemen that he rode with, one of them was charged one of them was not charged, and one of them, uh, his name is Dole, his last name is Dolan. He actually accepted a plea deal in the seditious conspiracy charge. The other one did not walk into the Capitol. He got separated from the main group because he needed to go to the bathroom. So, and rather than walking in the quote unquote stack that went up those steps and then eventually went into the the building itself, he was out looking for a public restroom. So he did not get caught up in the net uh, of those who walked in the building. So of the three guys that rode in that car from Florida to North Carolina, uh, to North Carolina, where they spent the night on the, the night of the fourth. And then the next day they drove all the rest of the way to DC on the fifth. And then they participated in their security details on the, the evening of the fifth and on the day of the sixth. And then the morning of the seventh, they drove, they deadheaded it all the way back to Florida. So they were together for four days by their own testimony as witnesses for the government. For the prosecution, both of those other men said that at no time during those four days was there ever any discussion of A, either overthrowing the government, B, insurrection, or C, entering the Capitol, or occupying the Capitol, or taking over the Capitol, or interfering with the election results. There was never a discussion in those four days. Of the, and this was comes from two of the government's own witnesses. But Ken Harrelson, because he did walk in that building, and he refused to accept a plea deal. He did no violence. He did no property damage. He was not involved in any planning 
no conspiracy planning, uh, certainly. He has been held in detention since mid-March of last year. So he's he's getting close to 600 days here. So Ken Harrelson, if there's a name, kind of a poster child for someone who who did not do anything violent. Nope. But has been held now for close to two years. I mean, technically someone could say, well, he should have accepted that plea deal. But if he didn't do anything violent, I mean... Uh, it goes off to him for not accepting a plea deal, right? So he hasn't done anything. He didn't actually offend. I mean, he didn't. Uh, what laws did he break? The guy that he was closest to, um, Dolan, who was with him most of the time, who was with him escorting the same group of VIPs from the rally site, uh, from, literally from the stage where Trump was speaking to the Capitol that day, expecting that they were going to be speaking on that second stage up on the Capitol grounds. The guys, those two guys that spent the most time together, one of them essentially got scared and was for whatever reason. And I feel sorry for the guy because he, he was, he's a 20 year Marine vet. He obviously has PTSD. He has possession, uh, uh, depression problems. He also is an admitted alcoholic. He was dealing with alcohol problems. And he um, was, you could see that he was a broken man on the, on the stand. And, the, and the, uh, obviously the prosecution had coached him into his testimony. But even with the coaching of the prosecution, the government itself, telling him what to say and telling him that if you say this, you're going to get a, you know, a, a shorter sentence than if you got convicted for this crime. So he actually took a plea deal. He's expected to get between five and seven years when his sentencing comes up uh, as part of his deal. But even he did not one time implicate the Oath Keepers on the actual charge that he took a plea deal on of seditious conspiracy. He actually said that with the two gentlemen that he rode with, including Ken, Ken Harrelson, that that conversation never happened. My next question is going to make me sound very partisan, um, but I'll, you know, I'll ask it anyways. Sure. Your opinion, <laughs> if we, we uh, um, analyze the people who were charged with violent acts, whether it's violence against humans or violence against property during the summer uh, of 2020, okay, if we're going to yep. compare the people who were uh, uh, in the emphasis, the national emphasis on charging these people and ho holding these offenders accountable to those acts, burning down private businesses, oftentimes uh, multiple instances I saw where business owners were trying to protect their, their place of business. I'm here in Louisville, Kentucky. Look yeah. no further. It happened here. And, and by the way, the Oath Keepers were there protecting private businesses in Louisville during that riot. Okay. Never got arrested, never got charged with anything. We're assisting law enforcement there in Louisville. Okay. Um, as, a ma as a matter of fact, Ken Harrelson, who we were just talking about, he was there. Wow. Okay. Um, but the people, the offenders who were destroying private businesses, who were, uh, I saw a horrible video of a, a business owner just being, beaten look like he was beaten to death for doing nothing more than saying hey leave my business alone right. Right. if we're if we're comparing uh the offenders in the degree to which they were held accountable for those acts during the summer of love or whatever you want to call it versus the january 6th incident or uh uh, uh whatever you want to call the january 6th uh episode um 
do you see any similarities? Is there lack of consistency? What are your thoughts on that? And once again, I know this is a partisan yeah. question, but what do you think? Well, Terry, I mean, first of all, you have to look and understand what you're missing there is in the summer of love that, you know, involved two to $3 billion worth of property damage and over 20 people killed in those riots. You just don't understand that you have to understand what their state of mind was. You have to understand that the, 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 the oppression that they, the systemic oppression that they had been under for so long that when the George Floyd killing death, murder, whatever you want to call it happened, that that clicked and set off an understandable reaction from those protesters against the systemic problems within government, systemic problems within law enforcement, that sort of thing. On the other hand, that which if you're honest, if you're an honest person, you can't do the same thing. <laughs> or should say, if you're a dishonest person, you can't do the same thing looking at the quote unquote insurrectionists in Washington, DC on January 6th, because um, they don't get the same grace they don't get the same level of understanding that their frustrations might have been just as valid as those that were kicked off after the George Floyd death, but because it was attacking the side of the government they liked, that they approved of, that that lawful transfer of power to Biden, except none of that actually happened. None of that was going to happen. This 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 notion that 225 people. Now, again, there were hundreds of thousands of people protesting, exercising their First Amendment rights that day in the form of gathering at a rally, the form of protesting and marching on the Capitol. But by the Department of Justice own numbers that only about 225 people actually did violence that day. So. I'm, I'm here to tell you that 225 people with sticks, flagpoles, and bear spray against two fully armed law enforcement divisions, including elements of the U.S. military, does not an insurrection make. And when you, again, when you look at the difference in property damage, you mentioned all the buildings that were damaged and destroyed and burned down in the Summer of Love, we're talking about also government buildings that were burnt to the ground, including police departments or buildings that were burnt to the ground, precincts. So this this is this was an attack on government because that's who that's that's exactly who they identified in the Summer of Love, BLM, Antifa, and the like, and all of those the thousands upon thousands that participated in violence. In those riots, they were attacking elements of government. Those who participated in violence on January 6th were, were attacking, essentially, an element of the government. But it wasn't the hundreds of thousands that were there. It wasn't the tens of thousands that marched on the Capitol. It was those who came prepared to do violence or came prepared to set off and trigger what they hoped would be a, a tidal wave reactionary violence against the government that day that didn't happen. People didn't respond to it. The only thing that they responded to were the open doors. And then they marched through with their flags and their cell phones, taking, you know, selfies and videos of the thing. But 
Um, even then, myself as an independent journalist who followed the story into the Capitol myself, I've had many, many people over the last year and a half who've said that I need to be, uh, I need to spend the rest of my life being waterboarded every day in Guantanamo just because I walked through the building with a camera. I know it, it seems like a difficult thing to compare for many, but uh, at least from my seat, it, it doesn't seem difficult. Uh, private businesses destroyed. The Oath Keepers, their mission statement, as you described earlier, is in effect to, as peacefully as possible, protect whether it's private property or private businesses. So I know this is, once again, very partisan. I'm going back to left versus right, uh, respect for private property rights, um, right, right, I guess right. being more on the right versus on the left where it's, uh, uh, they maybe worship more so the, the government buildings. Um, but the, the destruction of the, the businesses and the private properties, and as you said, even some government, uh, you know, buildings also during that entire summer, it just, it's very bizarre to me, the media, um, attention. Are there any other, are there many other independent journalists such as yourself present covering the Oath Keepers trial right now? Yeah. Uh, when I was threatened with prosecution myself back, uh, it's been 11 months ago now since the Department of Justice, an actual assistant U.S. attorney contacted my attorney and said that I was going to be charged for being, I mean, we have the actual letter from the uh, the DOJ saying they were going to charge me. They haven't. They've not followed through with that. In fact, we haven't heard from them since then. It's been 11 months since we've even heard from them. But there's a growing list of independent journalists uh, that I've been putting together, both who have been charged and those who have not faced charges. And in fact, we're looking at, in fact, the, in fact, when I finished this, uh, this podcast with you, I, my very next one, and well, actually 20 minutes from now, I'm actually in, I'm actually interviewing another independent journalist who was charged. And not only was he charged, but he, he may even be called as a test uh, as a witness in this particular oath keepers trial because twice now his videos have been used by the prosecution in their presentation of events and um and he has a, another story to tell about how they've used his videos which is inaccurate and so um uh, I'll be interviewing him in just a few minutes, but there's a, a, a there's a list of independent journalists who have been charged many of them already convicted and then oddly there's an equal number of independent journalists who have not been charged. And even though they did exactly the same things that the ones who have been charged, I, I seem to be caught in this netherworld in the middle. I, I, I honestly think that the DOJ doesn't know what to do with me. All right. Because first of all, I have a track record of um, 20 years before January 6th of being a writer, commentary, commentator, and analyst. Uh, so I have a lot more time under my belt as an independent than some of these guys who went in there, younger guys who've only been maybe doing this a couple of years. Some of these guys only got started uh, actually following the riots of 2020, and that's how they got their start was doing that. And, and captured some incredible video in those riots and, and even uh, garnered some fame as a result of that. In that situation itself, some of those brand new video journalists, independent, call them investigative journalists, whatever you want to call them, a gonzo, guerrilla journalists, some of those guys have been charged and some haven't been charged. And 
and so there seems to be some selective prosecution. I think that the primary trigger point for the DOJ, whether they went or after them or not, was how active they were in their speech as far as being anti-Trump, pro-Trump. Even that day, some of these journalists, I think, as they were going through the building because they were there as Trump supporters, you know, they they got involved with the chanting and uh, that was happening as well. And so that didn't bode well for them because they were Trump supporters when they went. But again, that that kind of becomes a thought crime because now they're being prosecuted for what they think and what they believe in, uh, what their personal political preferences are, as opposed to what their reasons and for being there were and what their actual activities were. If they walked through the building, if you have, if you have a non-Trump supporter and a pro-Trump supporter carrying a camera and you're there as a journalist and you walk through that building and one guy is known to be a leftist uh, writer or, or journalist sends his, sells his stories to, to the New Yorker, to whoever. And then you have a guy on the right who sells his stories maybe to the Daily Wire, the Blaze, or something like that, all right? And they both walk through the Capitol. They both do no violence. They both don't break a thing. They both record some of the same exact scenes. They're both sometimes in the same place at the same time recording the same event. And then they emerge from the Capitol on the other side, and then one of them is arrested and the other one is not. What do you think is the difference? difference between the two well if it leans to the one direction every time that's right it's 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 based on the way they think so this is a thought crime orwellian it's it's no more complicated than that that's exactly the difference in the selective prosecution that's happening now i'm kind of caught in the middle as the libertarian guy uh, because i was not there as a trump supporter um and I, as I said earlier at the beginning of this, I was a hardcore hashtag never Trump guy, ha- hardcore hashtag never Hillary guy in 2016. But And the reason I was a, a hardcore never Trump guy was because he came in uh, on my scorecard with a big fat zero because he had been on every side of every issue, you know, in his rhetoric leading up to the 2016 ele- election. So I didn't know who he was. And he had no legislative record. He had no executive record uh, running a state or running a, a city. So we didn't know politically wh- what he was really going to be. When we got to the 2020 election, I had him at about 50 50 on my Liberty quotient scorecard. Okay. Uh, you know, 50 50 is not a great score. Uh, it's not a Rand Paul that comes in at a 90 or, or you know, or somebody like that. Um, but in when we got to the 2020 election, we had Trump, Biden and Joe Jorgensen as a libertarian. And even though I had voted for uh, Gary Johnson in 2016, I saw the political landscape had changed so much by 2020 that I was willing to vote for the 50 50 guy over Biden, who I considered a negative 10 <laughs> and, and my, and my prediction has proved right in that regard versus Joe Jorgensen, who regardless of what I considered her on my Liberty quotient scorecard, I knew she didn't have a snowball's chance in hell. So I had no choice, but to go for the 50, 50 guy. So I did in fact, uh, endorsed Trump. And it was a, it was a very tepid endorsement in 2020 because I actually, in my, in the article I wrote, do you remember the old Hollywood squares, um, game show that used to be on? It was basically a tic-tac-toe, a tic-tac-toe game is what it was. Okay. I think I've seen that. 
Yeah. And so I, I took an image of the old stage setup from the Hollywood squares and I, you know, and I said, I'll take Trump in the top right corner to block. And, and so when you're voting for somebody to block, you're not voting for somebody to win. And that's what, that's how you play the game of tic-tac-toe. Um, and so that was a very rather tepid endorsement. So point being is the DOJ is going to have a hard time throwing me into that basket of deplorables <laughs> that, that Hillary liked to call the Trump supporters, uh, Trump supporters. But um, uh, maybe that, and among other things, have pro- provided me a shield of protection, at least up to this point, for being one of those independents that walked through the building that day. I know we only have a few minutes left, and Steve, I really appreciate you joining me, but you said you voted for Gary Johnson. You also said Rand Paul would score on maybe a 90% on the libertarian um, scorecard type thing. Um, uh, What do you think of Gary Johnson? In hindsight, was he a good candidate? Uh, And do you think Rand Paul would be, I guess, also maybe someone like Mike Lee, I'm guessing, would be not bad for your scorecard? Um, But what do you think of Gary Johnson and also of the current Senate or even Congress? You think Thomas Massey of the, uh, 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 you know, the of the current Congress members of Congress, you think he would score as high as anyone? What are your thoughts on them? You know, uh, Gary Johnson in 2016 uh, sabotaged the the Libertarian Party's chances of getting that mythical 5%, you know, that, that, that goal of 5%, which means they would get federal funding and maybe st- more stage time in the next round. And he sabotaged that by acting like a dopehead um, during the entire campaign. It, the, there was no reason why the Libertarian Party in 2016 could not have hit Ross Perot numbers from 1992. If you remember Ross Perot as an independent starting his own party, the reform party, I would just, you know, out, out of his back pocket, literally uh, was, was a guy that got 19% of the vote in that election between Clinton, uh, the first Bush and himself. He got 19% of the vote. He got 9% in uh, 1996. And so, uh, the the Libertarian Party squandered a fantastic opportunity by running two of the worst candidates. Now, I like Gary Johnson as governor in New Mexico. He had used his veto pen, I think, was it something like 700 times over eight years? I think I think that's the number. Point being, he, he, he vetoed more bills coming out of the New Mexico legislature um, than all the other uh, states combined. He was he was a rock star, uh, and that was as a Republican, and and of course, uh, I scored him on the Liberty Quotient at about a seventy percent. So he he actually as the Libertarian standard bearer, uh, he uh, he got a lower score than I was giving uh, Rand Paul, who was running in the primary on the Republican ticket. So you know that kind of gives you a little idea of how the, the the Libertarian Party might want to get their house in order. And maybe they have done so lately with the, um, the recent convention uh, con- convention results and the uh, the change in leadership that they've had. And that'll, that'll remain to be seen over time. Uh, and I think you asked me about um, Thomas Massey. I love Thomas Massey. He's another one of the uh, more Libertarian-ish uh, standard bearers in the Republican Party right now. And, and of course, uh, uh, Justin Amash, who who I think committed political suicide and he, he could have, he could have opposed Trump just as um, viciously or voraciously as he wanted to with his vote in Congress 
had he kept his mouth shut a little bit more, ended up sabotaging his political career. And that's, uh, you know, that, that's that's a that's a whole nother topic for another time. Yeah, I, I think Rand Paul voted against Trump a lot. Yes. Yes, he did. Rand Paul uh, probably was just like me. It was 50-50 on Trump. Uh, he, he voted against basically all of his spending bills, and and, uh, and that's what you want from a libertarian. And, and so, um, of course, libertarians think that he sold his soul because he became Trump's golfing buddy. Well, no, we want that kind of guy in the in the president's ear. We want our guy being able to whisper to the guy and say, would you think about it this way? And that's what we got from Rand in that relationship with Trump, not the other way around. Otherwise, we would have seen a collapse in Rand's voting record, and that didn't happen. Okay, great stuff. Steve, I really appreciate you joining me today. I guess I should ask real quick, what do you think of Blake Masters? Uh, well, you know what uh, remains? He's not, <laughs> uh, I, I will tell you, he's not somebody that I am qualified to um, pr- provide uh, analysis on. And the reason for that is simply this. Since he has been a newsmaker, I have had my head up James' ass almost exclusively. So I, I am not in a position to even, I mean, I mean, this, in fact, this particular election cycle, I'm, I'm uh, not the guy to talk about this because this has been, um, I, I've been so immersed in the, the, the run up to this trial. And then now in the middle of this trial, which will go through election day, obviously. Uh, and and I, I, I'm, I'm sorry to even admit this in public, but I, I, because I'm up here in DC for eight weeks straight, I forgot to get, you know, an absentee ballot. And so this will be the first election that I have missed in decades. I am a, I am a a very um, consistent voter. And I believe that that's our duty. You know, our responsibility as a citizen is to, is to exercise our right to vote. And I cannot believe that because of my distractions with all things related to this particular situation I'm involved in now that I let that get away from me. So I'm going to actually miss this vote. Steve Baker, if someone listening is interested in continuing to follow the Oath Keepers trial uh, and everything you have to say, of course, they can follow you at TPC4USA. How else can they keep up to speed with everything Steve Baker related in the January 6th trials? Yeah, I'm tweet storming from the courtroom every single day. Uh, so they can follow me on Twitter, as you said, at TPC, the number four USA, TPC for USA. That's my Twitter handle. Uh, also, the best place for more comprehensive coverage for the articles that I release in the evenings, the videos that I, I try to do a podcast kind of synopsis of the trial day every single day afterwards. And that's from our locals community or on rumble. Our locals community is the pragmatic constitutionalist.locals.com or just go to the pragmatic constitutionalist on rumble and you can see our, our podcast there. Steve Baker, thank you very much for your time. I look forward to hopefully speaking with you again sometime soon. Thank you. Thanks, Kelly. I appreciate you having me today. I want to thank everyone for tuning in to The Kelly Patrick Show. Of course, we will have another episode out soon. 